Well, before we get down to the nitty gritty of everything fun about cybersecurity reports, I wanted to put the question to both of you. I know we've had it before, but what's on repeat currently in your playlist? What's getting you through the workday? I'll go first to give you two just a moment to think of your response. I've been listening a lot to the Bear McCreary Apple radio, whatever you do right with the artists that I've pretty much been like, it started with Outlander. And then the amount of productivity that I've lied myself that I've been able to accomplish through soundtracks has been 100% that soundtrack on repeat. What about you, Matthew? Um, I am listening to Noah Kahan's Stick Season uh, that came out, I think, a month or two ago now. Um, highly recommend it. Very fun album. So good. What about you, Todd? Uh, there has been a five-year-old in my house, and so Baby Shark with a bullet. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. Uh, <laughs> I mean, that is playing, but 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 for me, the song that's been on repeat for whatever reason is it's called "The Loneliest" by Maniskin. Um, the band in general has been kind of on my uh, list, but that song, for whatever reason, has really stuck with me for the last week or so. Nice. And and, nice. and Baby Shark. <laughs> Yeah. And Baby Shark, adding both to my up next, 100%. <laughs> well, awesome. As to why we're sitting down today, sadly, it's not to talk about Baby Shark, but it is for the Tech for Business podcast that we're sitting down and talking about insights from that 2022 C report. Lots of acronyms. I'll let you guys explain it. But as to who we're talking to, who you've heard so far, I'm Kelsey. I'm a member of our marketing team, and I'm the moderator. Matthew is our GRC analyst, and Todd is our CISO and COO. And I'll let you guys take it away for what is it and what is the report talking about? Definitely. Um, so the ICCC is a segment of the FBI uh, that is about uh, the international, uh, the Internet crime and uh, I really should have looked it up again, but it's Internet Crime Complaint Center. Um, (laughs) I knew I'd get that. Just a little stalling is all we need. Uh, And basically they are a a group of people that uh, that wait for complaints and respond to them as necessary, which uh, as necessary is a fun term there. Um, In short, they they're a place where you should be reporting if you have. Uh, an internet crime that is committed against you. Uh, This can run the gamut of business to personal, um, people falling for scams or being extorted, blackmailed, et cetera. Those included here if it's being committed online. Bullying and harassment are included as well. And I highly recommend anyone going through anything like this does report as much as they can. It's always useful. It's very helpful. I've had instances where I've used it for reporting previously outside of my job. So highly can't recommend it highly enough. As part of that, I like to keep up with what they report every year, as as a lot of us do. Um, and their report from last year has come out uh, based on all the complaints that they received, uh, which amounted to approximately 2,000 reports a day. So as mentioned, this includes information related to both the business side of things and the personal side of things, but it's a very good insight into the attacks that people are talking about and what the monetary losses of that can be. Um, yeah. Yeah, one brief little thing that I was going to add to that is um, if you're not sure what ICCC is, 
um, and you were going through some sort of incident, if you have cybersecurity insurance or if you're working with a party that tends to get engaged in those processes, they'll typically get engaged for you. So it isn't something that you need to have the deep knowledge of the what, the how, et cetera. Those people will tend to help you through that process. Um, And then I did want to kind of expand briefly, and I will try to stay brief for a change. Um, on one of the comments that Matthew made is when do they get engaged? And um, I would echo what he said is anytime I would report basically everything. And I think it's the appropriate thing to do. What we typically see for engagement is if the event is less than $500,000, they typically do not get engaged. The caveat being if money leaves the United States to another country, they will always get engaged, um, which actually does lead to one of the interesting statistics that's in the report. Um, I don't know if you've got it off the top of your head, Matthew, I can look for it real quick, but I I wanted to say it was something like 73% of all funds were recovered by the the RAT team. Yeah, I think it was around 73. Uh, We'll get to it. I think I've got that number specifically written in here. Yes, yeah, 73%, uh, 73% success rate in freezing payments and, in their words, keeping money safe. Uh, so I'm assuming and, and we're assuming that that means didn't leave the country, was was blocked prior to being exported in any way. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm a little bit ahead of myself there, but um, I do think it's interesting that when they do get engaged, they are very, very successful in what they do. Exactly. And uh, on that, uh, one of the things I do want to mention is is you said like like you mentioned the insurance companies these sometimes are filled out by them as well it'll be as part of their internal process um sometimes it'll reach the point where it's it's blocked by say your bank first uh and so i have had instances where uh customers were falling for these and were attempting to send wire transfers and their banking team caught it and blocked it still report you should be reporting as much of this as possible um this is not just going to be me repeating, please report everything to the IC every sec, uh, every five minutes, but uh, I'll try and stop mentioning it. But please do. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I agree. In case you're wondering, I do agree. Um, because they will look at things in aggregate too. So even if your event is less than 500,000, if it does get to a point where it's an aggregate and they're seeing it's the same threat actor, they will again get engaged and they will take action. Uh, so we'll be uh, adding the link to the report um, to the, the the notes of this uh, podcast. So please have it open if you want to kind of follow along. Um, it's very dense, uh, but there is a lot of information, especially at the end, that covers some of the definitions we're using. Uh, so if there is a term that we use that maybe we don't expound upon as much as we probably should, <laughs> it is covered in the document, uh, and that'll be a good way to review it. Um, Diving into the big thing that I think this is based around and and the main thing that they work on, obviously, in terms of being uh, uh, on the monetary and blackmail and extortion side of things. Last year, there was $10.3 billion in losses from scams, extortion, blackmail, and all other forms of crime that were submitted via ICCC. Um, That's so much. And I know it's an increase from last year as well, but it keeps growing. 
Yeah, I we often do uh, cybersecurity training, and typically we start the process of a lot of people want to understand what's going on in the world, and that kind of gives you the context of what's happening. Um, unfortunately, there's a lot of uh, the the term in cybersecurity is again another acronym because why wouldn't there be? But it's called FUD, which is fear, uncertainty, and doubt. Um, but the the point I was trying to make in this particular instance is, is people kind of are like, well, why do they keep attacking me? Well, $10 billion is an awful big reason to continue to do it. Exactly. Uh, so that'd be kind of the basis of why you're typically seeing most of it. It is almost all for financial gain. Yeah. And uh, Todd, you and I were speaking about this not too long ago. Um, and, and we've done this in a previous podcast. Uh, the large hacking groups work like legitimate businesses. They aren't obviously, because it's a crime, but they work that same way. They have fantastic looking websites with very easy support systems to help you pay. There are jobs posted online looking for people to do this work, to assist them, to to put together the websites and those support teams and be part of the chat team. It is growing because of that price. Um, for context, over the past five years, there's been $27.6 billion in losses. So last year's 10.3 accounts for more than a fifth of that. Um, it's growing exponentially. Uh, in 2018, it was just $2.7 billion. So it's grown almost four times in five years. Uh, when we dig into those numbers more and what that actually looks like, um, of those uh, of that 10.3 billion, 4.9 billion of it was from uh, people over the age of 50. So that was monetary loss from that. Now, this document doesn't break down whether or not that was business related or personal. So we can't define how much of this was from business loss and how much was from personal loss. But we can say that um, phishing is still the top form of it, of crime that's committed and the, the, the main attack vector. But business email compromise was ninth on the list and accounts for a billion dollars in losses on its own. So if we ignore the uh, the split of of ages and go purely for what the attack vector was, there's a lot of money here that's coming out of businesses from a direct email compromise that may also include additional money from other sectors. Um, I have a lot of opinions on this. Uh, so I'll pass it off to Todd first before I just keep <laughs> rambling. <laughs> uh, no, I think it's excellent. I, there there were a couple stats that I, I thought were were interesting. That's all back up just briefly is Matthew was covering some of the statistics that went in there. Um, he talked about being about 10.3 billion in 22. Uh, it was only about only about 6.9 <laughs> billion in 21. Oddly enough, the statistics that are in the report is there were actually less complaints filed by roughly 40,000 less reports, and yet the increase was over 34% more dollars out there. So when Matthew says they're getting bigger and bigger, uh, 100%. Um, going back to the phishing comment, the reason why business email compromises is not as much of an aha, it's only that 1 billion, again, only. It was only 1 billion. I think the, the big threat that we're still seeing is ransomware and there's other types of attack types that tend to be a very heavy in the dollar amounts um and business email copper i'm sorry email phishing is still the number one obviously 
form that that process begins. So um, we've talked about it at nauseum. Anybody wants to go into the Wayback Machine to 2022, there is an, an MFA and there are EDR podcasts out there too. So there, there's some really good content on how you can protect yourself against those types of attacks. Yeah, there's there's so much of it that comes down to what we call the attack vector, right? Like how did it get in? And while some of the things we're saying, like a business email compromise and phishing may seem like they go hand in hand, uh, we could spend the whole podcast explaining how they don't uh, or how they differ or how they don't have to when they can be divergent. So these, the one thing I will mention as part of this is that this is all self-reporting. So while some notes may be updated, um, by uh, the ICCC to reflect information they have. Keep in mind that we can't guarantee the information provided directly reflects what occurred because we it's impossible to know the technical level of everyone who was filling out this form, okay? Um, so while it does just, I would actually say expand most of these numbers, expand especially the uh, the business email compromise number because it does include different actions and different attack vectors that may have impacted and caused it in the first place. Um, I don't want to stick too heavily on that, but it is also very focused around numbers. As Todd mentioned, the uh, FBI. Uh, so the team that actually does this work is called the RAT team, um, <laughs> which uh, is just great. They're called the recovery asset team. Um, so <laughs> they uh, they'll get pulled in for for this if there is that monetary value of over five hundred thousand dollars. And and again, we're averaging this number is specific to each incident, um, but that's what we've seen. Um, and then on top of that, it's about uh, where that money's going. So there is that monetary basis for how important some of these things may be weighted and what is and isn't included. We don't have specifics on on too much of how that information is coming out, except to say that they're providing what they provide. Um, so that 10.3 maybe maybe smaller, maybe slightly larger. I would say it's probably slightly larger because there's going to be more people who were uncomfortable reporting information than there were people who underreported what was taken. Uh, you see a lot of this in the numbers uh, that have changed from year to year. Um, one thing that hasn't changed is that healthcare is still the biggest uh, the biggest sector for ransomware attacks um, across the board. It's it's still growing uh, by magnitudes. Yeah, I wanted to expand on that a little bit too. Um, the way that Matthew phrased it, it almost seems like it's kind of a surprise, and and it and it sort of is, and it doesn't <laughs> seem like it should be a surprise, right? There's so much information that healthcare has access to. Um, but I think what potentially gets lost in, in just the overall thinking is everybody tends to go healthcare. That means hospitals and it means whatever. It doesn't always. There's a lot that goes into that healthcare category. That can be your optometrist. It could be the dentist. It could be, you know, anything. And quite frankly, the chiropractor falls into that category. So there's your insurance. Um, yep. So there's there's a lot of different areas that fall into that category, and a lot of those businesses are quite small. They're just not automatically a massive business like a United Health Group or a Kaiser Permanente. Um, 
So there's a lot of people that are in those industries, and it's difficult for them to to keep up with the cybersecurity, the threats, and everything, just like everybody else is. Um, and especially when you're looking at those smaller individuals, it's much, much harder for them to go, well, I don't have the people. I'm not big enough to afford the multi-$100,000 CISO in my back pocket. You know, those things are very, very difficult to find. So it, it is interesting. Um do you want to get into the states that are mostly affected by that? I mean, yeah, it's it's it starts with California. <laughs> uh, it let me, yeah. So it, it starts with California. the The number of victims for California was almost double that of Florida, who were next on the list. Um, so eighty thousand victims from California, forty two thousand from Florida. Um, does this represent? that California is being more attacked is is kind of a question that we can't answer from this as well. Um, what it does imply, and, and when we look at the specific numbers of losses, um, California had uh, $2 billion um, of loss out of that 10.3 came purely from California. So what I think we can say from this, and, and I am extrapolating, is that while there were more, it seems like there might be more of an attack vector there purely based on what the funds that are coming out of it are. So that doesn't again mean that any other state is more safe or less safe. It just means that there's possibly more attacks going to California than anywhere else. Um, a surprise for me was that uh, Texas and New York are almost neck and neck on here. I thought there would be a bit of a distinction there, but they're they're third and fourth and then fourth and third based on number of victims and victims of and victim loss. Yeah, again, it's it's really hard to look at those numbers and say this is what it means. And and yeah, you know, obviously partially it's got to be population. So there is at least that factor that goes into it. But again, it's hard to know exactly what it was. Did was there just a really large breach or or yeah. whatever? And I guess we could figure that out if we dug into it deep enough. But again, this report really doesn't dig into that detail. Um, I did want to back up real briefly too, because I, I was as we're talking about the number of attacks and locations and whatnot. At the very beginning, you did the intro and you talked about the sheer quantity of dollars that were attacked on the over 50 population uh, age-wise. Um, and, and I thought it was an interesting statistic for a couple of reasons. And again, now I'm, I'm extrapolating. I know Matthew mentioned at the beginning, we don't know exactly what that is, um, but but I was shared a story somewhat recently with Matthew and Kelsey that I had a family member that sent me a screenshot of the typical pop-up that says, hey, you seem to be having problems with your PC. Click here to engage a phone call and we'll help you through that. And the, the question is, is this legitimate? And the answer obviously is no, because Microsoft isn't going to tell you to call them. Um, that's not how they behave. But it was targeted at somebody that was well over 50, and I go, well, so is it a personal thing? And there are some statistics in here that how many attacks were personal versus business, but again, you're still digging into it. In the context of business, what we typically see a lot of companies do, and, and maybe this isn't just the company itself, maybe it's a culture, maybe it's just the individuals at the top, is you'll often see the people that are at the board level or in the officer level or that senior executive team tend to go, yeah, I fully support security so long as it doesn't impact me. Um, yeah. That was kind of the main thrust I wanted to make on, on talking about this a little bit more is what does that mean? Should I continue to just go, I'm 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 a little wiser since I'm a little older, therefore I can spot a 
a fish, sure, I can do whatever better than anyone else. Is that a fair statement or should people treat things differently as they understand these statistics? Exactly. I mean, there is so much that goes into what an attack is now that knowing that um, so much money came from that that portion of the population means we should be taking additional actions. Now, I agree with you. I've I've heard from multiple people the argument, you can implement it for everyone else, but leave it for me. Um, part of that is that it is a real interruption for a lot of people. Um, I have actively had to have conversations which change the mindset of signing in as just username and password to no, signing in is always username, password and MFA. If you don't use MFA, you're actually signing in unsafely and kind of changing what people think of as that initial process, right? And and that's just an easy example of it, but that is the type of thing that can definitely increase your risk within the space. Um, there are also attacks of, as, <laughs> as you get into those positions, there are more things that you're handling. There's more things you're making decisions of. So the chances of you having an email that would seem obviously suspicious to someone else being incredibly not suspicious for you and in fact just part of your regular day increases so there's a bigger attack vector for the things that you would do as well the solution is not treating yourself differently to everyone else um yes it's different it is a change to the way you may work and it may increase the amount of time it takes you to do some things every day is that better than a hundred thousand dollar fine a $500,000 fine. Um, and that's just from the HIPAA perspective. What if it's a actual ransomware attack and they're asking for $10 million? What point is you not having MFA on your phone worth that? <laughs> so those are the things that I focus on and, and I, I think, and I try to instill when I'm discussing this at that level is a to uh, 20 it's 20 seconds it's 30 seconds in the morning to set up mfa right uh and then use it every day if that and yeah, wait wait less if, than that <laughs> exactly if it's not <laughs> if that's not worth the potential of the business losing millions of dollars there's a question there as to why um but the other reason that i believe that age range is um so targeted is because you are making those decisions of course you're being targeted. We have entire names for phishing at C-level executives, which we call whaling, which is purely around this fact. Um, so of course they're gonna be uh, more attacks and the monetary numbers are gonna be bigger because there are more resources that you're in control of. So remembering that while it may seem like an annoyance, you have this position of power and therefore should be doing your best to respect and and safe keep that um, as much as possible is, is where I try to come down on it. Um, especially given these numbers, I will make one very brave prediction. If you are a healthcare provider in California, um, <laughs> use MFA. You, you might want to, it feels like a comedy skit. You might want to use MFA. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, this These numbers show that there, there are things that make you a bigger using that language from before a bigger whale a, a bigger prospect for these organized teams do what you can to mitigate that 
Uh, yeah, one thing that I'll add to that um, very good overview is um, I don't want to insinuate that only senior individuals as far as age tend to be in those upper positions because it, it definitely is not the case. There are plenty of smart young people out there that are in those positions as well. But this information still applies to you where we're just extrapolating on a specific specific statistic. Um, one thing that I would add in addition to when it comes to what else should you do about it is training. Um, it's a huge thing. If you are in a compliance industry, it doesn't really matter what it is. It is very specifically called out that your senior executive team should have additional training from the rest of your staff for exactly this reason. Um, your board of directors should have specific training. Your lines of business could potentially require specific training to what the threats are to them specifically. But, but in this case, I think the point that we're really trying to bring home is this impacts everybody. I, I was going to pitch in in the middle of, of what Matthew was saying and go, but I'm important, Matthew. I don't want to, <laughs> uh, but it's really not true. Um, I, I wanted to kind of expand on that piece too, as, as he was talking about multi-factor and how there is some friction that goes with it. It is not always convenient, but the reality is it's not that inefficient. It's not always that much friction. And if it is, there are plenty of options out there to kind of reduce friction. The downside, if there is one, is that friction removal does tend to have a, a dollar sign that's associated with it, but there are some excellent tools out there that will help mitigate that friction for companies as they need it to, especially that group that may feel like their time is incredibly valuable. They may be willing to pay for those kinds of things. I'll agree. Uh, and just quickly on that, uh, there is obviously so many ways to do it, so many different tools. If you get the right one for your organization, it becomes not just a point of pride, but a point of excitement. Um, the amount of times I've been able to implement something that seems kind of like science fiction and does make life easier at the same time while also increasing security, those are the moments that I look for the most because it means you're not just making it more secure, you're creating a more streamlined process. When we talk about MFA, most people think about having to get a text message or bring up an, an authenticator app. But there are hardware keys that you can use, which will sign you in automatically when you plug them into workstations and, and provide a, a fingerprint or a pass code. In healthcare environments, they can be very time saving. And that was the scenario I was thinking of. I had multiple doctors who were annoyed at the login process and then got hardware keys and were just like they would plug it in and sign in and then pull it out and plug it back because they were like, look at how easy this is. And it's <laughs> if you can save time, especially when you're moving between multiple computers, don't think of it as just a time sink or as, you know, a, an, a decrease in availability to your software and hardware and information. Look for some of them and remember that while there may be a cost to that, like Todd said, if it streamlines your process beyond where it is now, you may actually get a saving out of it from people being more efficient. Yeah, um, it, this is not a healthcare podcast. So I feel no. like we probably <laughs> should do one. But I, I wanted to emphasize that really quickly too, is when you're in healthcare, there are some people that get paid some significant amounts of dollars and they tend to be the ones that are saying this is slowing me down. So when I said that there is potentially a dollar figure that potentially goes with some of the solutions to reduce friction, to Matthew's point, 
when those doctors are getting paid very large dollars, you're willing to pay a couple cents for them to log in very, very quickly because on the grand scheme of things, that makes them more efficient. It, it makes them less frustrated, et cetera, et cetera. You can see how that would be a huge boon for anybody in that particular industry. So there are absolutely ways forward. And again, I know I tangented a little bit into healthcare there that I didn't anticipate doing, but but it was just really good information. And I felt like we just had to sneak it in real quick. Todd, you should have warned me. Uh, Todd, you know, I was reading HIPAA documentation before this podcast, so I probably <laughs> guided us down that as well. Um, so I, I know we're we're running short on time, so I just want to mention, um, definitely read through this document. Um, there is risk and awareness of risk that you can gain from reading documents like this every day or whenever they come up. Um, you don't have to read them every day like I do. Uh, <laughs> keep in mind that it is a select amount of information. It is self-report. As much as we want to take all of this and, and start making big decisions from it, keep in mind that it's about what's relevant to your business, what's relevant to your industry. Um, and then on top of that, don't use the fact that maybe your state is lower on this list than you would expect it to be or anything like that as a reason to not care because the numbers are growing. So even though your state isn't as high as maybe California, the number for your state is still increasing. And while people are being targeted, generally these types of attacks happen in a shotgun blast style effect where it's not just the thing that they're looking for as a big organization, but every subset and and subcontractor and vendor they work with that's being targeted at the same time so while you may not be the exact target you can get caught in the uh, the crosshairs of that as well and that's what you're trying to protect from uh we focused a lot on mfa there's a lot of other things that you can do as well <laughs> but mfa is a basis and really everyone should have it by now um or should be looking at it at the very least so just wanted to mention that. Any last thoughts from you, Todd? No, I think we summarized it really, really well. I think overall, the only I guess I can throw the the, the training in there again because we did just mention it. But but between those two, those would be the massive thrust. That I'd say these are the good places to focus for this particular report. There's a lot of good information in there. Uh, but that was about it. No, oh, that's awesome. Both of you made that very interesting, which I am not somebody who reads these reports daily, so thank you. But as we mentioned, as Todd alluded to, that A, we have a lot of previous podcasts to talk about MFA, EDR, our passwords going away, which covers a lot of this content. And then as far as we should do one on healthcare, that's actually, I think, three weeks down the line we're doing a healthcare one. So yeah. we got it <laughs> coming. On that note, this is my marketing promotion to say, yes, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts or watch us on YouTube. My preference is listening. <laughs> but if you want to get in touch with either Todd or Matthew, geek out with them, read reports daily, get coffee, you know, all the good things, you can always reach out info at cit-net.com or head out to our website, cit-net.com backslash podcast, or else this is a bonus episode, which means we'll be back in less than a week with another episode. <laughs> <laughs>